I invite you to turn with me to a very brief portion of Scripture found in Proverbs chapter 15, first part of verse 24. The way of life is above to the wise that he may depart from hell beneath. Focusing on the words, the way of life is above to the wise. I'm going to talk about heaven today. Why did God create heaven? Very simply, in order to glorify himself, to glorify His mercy, to glorify His love, to glorify His grace. For any who enter into the everlasting delight and rest of heaven do not do so by their own merits, but by the riches of God's grace and mercy that are found in Jesus Christ. If I were to ask, How many of you want to go to heaven when you die? I dare say that all would raise their voices and their hands in unison. But do you only want to go to heaven because you do not want to go to hell? Is that the reason you want to go to heaven? Heaven is the particular habitation of God himself. The very throne of God is said to be in heaven. Heaven is, dear ones, a place where holiness and love and peace and knowledge and life and joy reign. Dear ones, heaven is only your home if Christ is your city of refuge to whom you have fled to find safety from the all-consuming vengeance of a holy God. If you believe you can live the way that you want to live here and now and yet find entrance into the unspeakable glories of heaven at your death, I say kindly, you are grossly deceived. Why, in fact, would one who has despised the things of God here upon the earth, who has turned his back upon the invitations of Christ for life and forgiveness, who has loved and embraced his sin and pleasure rather than the Lord Jesus Christ, and who has merely gone through the motions the outward motions of worship, just showing up for worship on the Lord's day, but his heart being far from God. Why would such a one want to spend all eternity in a place of holiness where the chief joy and delight of the saints in heaven will be the very God that he has despised, ignored, and neglected? Dear ones, if you want to go to heaven... Shouldn't your life here upon earth reflect that desire? If your citizenship is in heaven, as Paul says, is the case of all Christians in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, shouldn't your heart ache to be in your homeland? Shouldn't your speech indicate to the people of this world that you are presently resident aliens in a foreign land. For this was the testimony of Abraham, the father of all those who believe, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 9 and 10 and verse 13. Hebrews 11, verse 9. Listen to the testimony of Abraham. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked 
For a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. You see, that's the testimony of those who want to go to heaven. I submit, dear ones, that a study of heaven will reveal to each of us where our heart really is. For where our treasure is, whether in heaven or on earth, there will our heart be also. I ask you today, where is your treasure? Is your chief treasure in loved ones, pleasures of this life, work, riches, or education? Or is your chief treasure in Christ and his heavenly inheritance? The main points from this first part of our text in Proverbs 15.24 are the following. First, heaven is an incentive to godly living. And second, heaven is the realization of God's promises. First of all, then, Heaven is an incentive to godly living. Our text says in Proverbs 15, verse 24, the way of life is above to the wise. What is the way of life? The way of life is that path or road by which a sinner who is justly condemned to everlasting death in hell, comes to know and receive everlasting life through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the way of life. It's the way of everlasting life rather than the way of everlasting death and condemnation. This way of life is the means by which one who is dead in trespasses and sins comes to be raised from the tomb of hopelessness and despair wherein his sins have buried him. Dear ones, if I could tell you a way in which you could live to be a thousand years old, enjoy good health during that thousand years, a sound mind during that thousand years, that whole period of time, wouldn't you be interested? Wouldn't you be interested in such a remedy or such a gift? Well, I sure would be. But, dear ones, I have even better news than that. I can tell you the way and the the only way in which you can live not for merely a thousand years but forever. Enjoy forgiveness of sin. Have perfect righteousness. Joy unspeakable and fellowship with the one true living God forever and ever. The way of life is very simple. The way of life is Jesus Christ who is himself Jacob's ladder and our ladder to heaven, according to John 1.51. Heaven is open to man through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John 14.6 isn't it absolutely amazing how many people would flock to hear the way uh, to live a mere thousand years? If that were the, the theme, how to live a thousand years, do you think that we would have any empty seats here today? 
probably could fill the Pepsi arena and have people lined up outside how to live a thousand years. But how few would come to hear how to live forever? How to live forever in the new heaven and in the new earth. Let us not be deceived, dear ones, into thinking that this way of life is is broad and we'll find many walking on it. For the Lord Jesus has stated ever so clearly that the broad way which most people in this world travel is a very inclusive and comfortable way in which to walk, wherein people may believe whatever they want to believe and live the way that they want to live. That's the broad way. But this way that leads to everlasting torment, this way that I've just described is the way that leads to everlasting torment in hell, that broad way. It is, however, the narrow way revealed by Christ in the gospel alone, which Jesus says, few people, relatively speaking, compared to the many that walk the other way, relatively few people, by comparison, find that way which leads to everlasting life and joy in heaven above. This narrow way which leads to heaven, dear ones, is a way of holiness. For dear ones, heaven is a holy place where no sin exists. Why would one who wants to live according to his own pleasures and desires here upon the earth want to live in heaven where only the will and pleasure of God is done? How could one who despises a holy life here upon earth find any joy in heaven where only holiness reigns? This narrow way of Christ is indeed exclusive. It's exclusive. Let no one tell you anything different. It is exclusive. It is God's way and not your way or my way. The narrow way of Christ, dear ones, is uncomfortable. We must painfully crucify our sinful desires not indulge them. We must take up our cross daily and follow Christ. But in the end, there is life and peace and a joy to which nothing on earth can be compared. Note secondly about this way of life that it it is above to the wise. It is above to the wise. It is not beneath in hell. It is above in heaven. There is the final destiny of all who walk the way of life found only in Jesus Christ in heaven above. But although this way of life in Christ begins while we are here upon the earth, the way of life leads to heaven above, and is set before us by God as the promised land to which we travel. There was even as Israel, you recall from your, your knowledge of the Old Testament, Israel lived after being delivered from Egypt, lived in temporary tents, and moved from location to location while in the wilderness. So we do likewise while here on earth in our temporary homes in temporary bodies. And while Israel endured the trials of the wilderness, she was yet to look to the land of promise across the Jordan, which God had made for her, at which time her temporary tents and wilderness wanderings would finally come to an end. So we are to do likewise, even now, dear ones, as aliens and pilgrims in this world in which we live. 
We are to look forward to the heavenly land of promise, whose builder and maker is God. An unspeakable place of glory where we will cease to be aliens and foreigners, cease to live in temporary dwellings and homes, and will take up an everlasting residence of joy, never to be moved again. In other words, the Lord has set heaven before us as a reward, just as he set the promised land before Israel as a reward, which was to to motivate Israel and is to motivate us to walk in the way of life while we are here yet upon the earth. Dear ones, it is very common for us to work very hard when we know that there is a reward that awaits us. Children, you will ordinarily apply yourselves to your work very, very diligently when you are promised a special reward or privilege at the end of accomplishing that particular task, that project. Adults, you will spend extra time at work to get a project done when there is a bonus that's promised at the completion of that project. Likewise, our Heavenly Father knows the encouragement that a reward also provides to his weak children who become discouraged over their besetting sins, who become afraid of persecution, who become weary of trials and afflictions, and who are tempted to seek the pleasures of this life in exchange for communion with Jesus Christ. And that reward, which encompasses all that Christ has prepared for those who have embraced him by faith alone, and who evidence that faith by their love and good deeds, is designated as an everlasting reward, as everlasting life, as heaven. Heaven and the blessings associated with it are actually called a reward in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Jesus, speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, the conclusion of the Beatitudes, says, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Therefore, heaven and its blessings are set before the Christian as that which he should ever keep before him, as he faces the various trials, struggles, and temptations in this world, he should ever keep before him heaven, the glories that lie ahead of him. Let me ask you a question. Are rewards in the covenant of grace offered and granted due to the merit of our works? Absolutely not. Listen closely. If a child does precisely what his father commands him to do, the child by his obedience does not obligate the father to give him anything. For the child has only done that which the child was supposed to do. 
That is to obey his parents, to obey his father. Ephesians 6, 1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Whether there is any reward or not, that's the right thing to do. The child can make no legitimate claim to a reward from his father for the child's obedience. However, if the father freely chooses out of his generosity and love to bestow a reward upon his child in order to motivate him to a cheerful obedience, the father obligates himself. The child doesn't obligate him. The father obligates himself to gladly grant the reward to the child for what the child was supposed to do anyway. Likewise, dear ones, the reward of heaven is not something the believer obligates God to pay, but something which God has obligated himself to pay by way of his own gracious and sovereign will to believers in Jesus Christ. The merit that earned that reward is not the believer's obedience, but Christ's obedience for those who trust in Jesus Christ. And yet the reward is related by way of God's sovereign and gracious appointment within the gospel to the believer obeying the Lord out of love, out of reverence for who God is and the love and the mercy and the grace that God has given to him. The Lord graciously works within us both to will and to do his good pleasure according to Philippians 2.13. And then, amazing as it seems, he works within us to will and to do his good pleasure. And then he rewards us for doing his good pleasure by giving to us heaven. What an amazing God we serve. It is important to keep in mind that we are not rewarded, quote, on account of our works, but rather we are rewarded Quote, according to our works, as we see in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, where we read <clears throat> the Lord Jesus speaking, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. According to his works not on account of his works. Because we are rewarded only on account of Christ's works, not on account of our own. But we are rewarded according to our works because where there are no works, where there is no obedience, where there is no cheerful obedience or love on the part of one who claims to be a Christian, there will be no reward. It's indicative that there's not really saving faith. Dear ones, how does the reward of heaven motivate the child of God to walk in the path of life? Well, the very weakness, sin, temptation, fear, or trial we face here upon the earth is promised to be removed forever in heaven. For example, we know our own besetting sins, whether they be lustful desires, pride and selfishness, envying the gifts and the graces of others, discontentment with our present circumstances, sinful outbursts of anger, gossiping about others behind their backs, Fear of man, circumstances, or the unknown. Deceit in lying or cheating. 
hypocrisy in going through the mere motions of worship, the love of money or the love of the pleasures of this life, or forsaking and neglecting Christ as our first love. Whatever our besetting sins are, how many times, dear ones, have we fallen into those besetting sins? How many times, after having fallen into those sins, have we cast ourselves again and again and again upon Christ? And sought His forgiveness through faith in Christ just to fall again into those besetting sins. Now, dear ones, would not would not the contemplation and meditation upon the final destruction of those awful, grievous, besetting sins and that cycle, once and for all, coming to an end, would that not be a great encouragement to you to persevere and to cling to that certain hope of your heavenly reward? Will not the holiness of your heavenly home, dear ones, work within you a greater desire to be holy here upon the earth? Or what about those many physical weaknesses, pains, afflictions, that you suffer from day to day in this life. Some of you suffer with chronic illnesses. And perhaps at times despairing of life itself due to the pain and the suffering. Would not the certain reward of heaven bring comfort and consolation to you that there's coming a time in which all physical suffering will be forgotten? And remembered no more. Because God will transform these corruptible bodies into incorruptible bodies. Incapable of suffering the slightest pain ever again. Or what about the many fears that, that plague your life? Perhaps the fear of losing a loved one in death. The fear of your own death. A fear of suffering for your faith. A fear of man. The fear of the unknown. Again, taking the time to spend in glorious contemplation of heaven where you will never have the slightest hint of fear again. Would that not re- renew your resolve and determination to continue to cling to Christ? To not let go. Dear ones, we do not fear what we will gain. Rather, we fear what we will lose. And the reason we will never, ever fear again in heaven is because we gain everything and can lose nothing. Or what about the trials you face every day wherein your faith is sorely tested? They may not even be very big trials when compared to the trials that other people are going through. But the constant wear and tear upon your spiritual and emotional stability is wearisome to the point of collapse and exhaustion. You might even feel ashamed that such trials test your faith to such a degree of anxiety. Would it not be a great encouragement to you to reflect upon the fact that in heaven faith will give way to sight? There will be no trials of faith any longer for there will be no trials in heaven and there will be no faith needed in the promises of God Because we will have all of the promises of God then. 
we'll fully realize all of the promises of God then. Or what about the loneliness that you face in this life? At times, the loneliness is so overwhelming and painful that you do not even want to go on living. Oh, dear one, the fellowship and communion in heaven will never be broken. No one there will ever be isolated from perfect fellowship with Christ, with the elect angels, or with the glorified saints of all ages. Will not suffering a few years of loneliness here upon the earth, if God so wills it and so ordains it, be worth the unbroken communion of God and the saints forever and ever? This, dear ones, is how the reward of heaven motivates the Christian to walk in the way of life while he or she is still here upon the earth. Finally, the second, final, last point. Heaven is the realization of God's promises. Why is the way of life above to the wise? Because heaven is, dear ones, the realization and perfection of all of God's promises made to his beloved children. Under this main point, I would like to answer some questions that are often asked about the realization of heaven. First question, what will heaven be like? Well, the glory and happiness of heaven cannot be expressed in mere human words as we see from the testimony of the Apostle Paul, who had a glimpse of heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, there the Apostle Paul says, speaking of himself, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. How do you explain a place so full of holiness and righteousness, so complete in joy and happiness, so perfect in peace and security, so abounding in fellowship and communion, that anything to which you might try to compare it using mere human words but only seem to detract from the glory of that place, only scratch the surface. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.9, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. There's no way to describe it. Nevertheless, what God has revealed to us in his word about heaven makes earthly pleasures a fading and flickering match in comparison to the glory of the noonday sun. God does give us some descriptions of the new heaven and new earth in Revelation Chapter 21, verses 2 through 4. Listen to these words as given by the Apostle John through the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, 
Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. God will permanently dwell in all of his glory among his people, which was pictured in the Old Testament with the Ark of the Covenant dwelling in the midst of Israel, according to Leviticus 26, verses 11 and 12. God says, by virtue of the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant being in the midst of Israel, that he was tabernacling with them. This was a picture of the new heaven and the new earth where the Lord would, would in all of his glory dwell in the midst of his people. Whereas the Son of God became flesh and tabernacled among men for some 33 years, God will forever tabernacle among us in heaven. We will no longer have to cry out, Lord, how long will it be until I know thee face to face? Until I behold thy glory and stand in thy presence to praise and worship thee with unfettered voice and, in, and enjoy unbroken communion with thee. God is, dear ones, our first and chief reward in heaven. For all the blessedness of heaven is in him and from him and through him. All the miseries of this life will forever be removed. As we've said, all sin, temptation to sin, desires to sin, all hurts and heartaches and fears and loneliness will be swallowed up in the joy and the peace and contentment in the Lord. If we have, dear ones, the capacity to enjoy to some degree by God's grace that which God has created in this world amidst all the misery that surrounds us, what will be our capacity to enjoy the eternal glories of the new heaven and new earth which so far excel the fading glories of this creation when all misery when all misery is abolished. The capacity of our glorified souls and bodies to enjoy the glories of heaven will know no limitations other than man's own finiteness. A second question, will heaven be non-material or material? Well, dear ones, heaven is not a state of the mind. But it's a place above, above earth, as we read in our text. The way of life is above to the wise. It must be material. If those with glorified material bodies dwell there, such as Enoch, and who was taken to heaven without dying. If Elijah, who likewise was taken to heaven without dying, dwells there. If Christ, who is certainly raised from the dead and is in a body, is there. And after the resurrection of all believers who will have their glorified bodies, if they will dwell in the new heaven and new earth, their heaven must be material. God, dear ones, will renovate the present heaven and earth and make paradise lost, paradise regained, according to Revelation 21.1. If it's not a material place, then I would ask, what's the purpose of the resurrection? Why have a resurrected body if heaven is not itself a material place? A third question, what will we do in heaven? Well, we will chiefly praise and glorify the living God. We read in Revelation chapter 19, 
verses 1 through 3. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. We will commune, dear ones, with God. We'll fellowship with his holy angels and with his saints from all ages. And we will know them. How will we know them? Will we need to be introduced? Well, the Mount of Transfiguration We're not told how Peter, James, and John knew that that was Moses and Elijah, but perhaps it was simply by way of revelation that God gave to them that that's who these men were, though they had never met them. We're not, nothing's mentioned there that God, that Christ introduced them and said, this is Moses and this is Elijah. But perhaps simply a supernatural knowledge. And that will be amazing to be, a, to be able to go up to people we have read about in the scriptures. Whom we have read about subsequent to the writing of the scriptures. Great heroes of the faith. To be able to go up and to have that kind of fellowship and communion with them will be wonderful as well. Be able to speak with Gabriel, with the elect angels, the holy angels of God. Heaven isn't going to be a boring place. Uh, There's no such thing as boredom in heaven. Is there boredom in when you are perfectly happy? When you're at perfect peace and delight, is that boring? If that's boring, bring on more boredom then. That's what heaven will be. There's nothing boring about that. We will serve the Lord using various capacities that the Lord gives to us. In Matthew 25, it speaks that those who are faithful were given more reward, greater reward than those who did not use as much of what God had given to them, the gifts and the capacities here upon the earth, they will receive by way of reward greater capacity, it says in Matthew chapter 25, verses 21 and 23, to be able to serve the Lord in heaven. And so we will be doing things. Again, according to those gracious capacities that God gives to us. And we will not be envying what God has given to others. We will be very happy with what we have. Finally, it would appear that those who receive such rewards in heaven cast them all before the Lord, acknowledging that it is God who is to be glorified for such rewards so graciously bestowed upon them rather than exalting in themselves. They will take their crowns and they will cast them before the Lord, their God, saying, it's not me. It's not me. It's all of God from beginning to end. In closing, dear ones, I submit that if we were to spend 15 minutes a day from our very busy days, from our days that are, spil- that are filled with much anxiety and stress, and we were to reflect upon and meditate upon the glories of heaven 
the rewards which the Lord has prepared for those who love him, it would likely transform and change our day. I submit that if we would reflect upon the reward of heaven in the midst of our weaknesses and our sins and our temptations, fears and trials, illnesses, I believe our lives would be changed. I submit that if we were even to reflect upon the reward of heaven when we succeed and when we prosper and when we gain in this life, it would turn all pride at our own attainments into humility before the Lord. Remember, dear ones, Israel... That whole generation of Israel that did not enter into the promised land did not enter because they did not believe. Though the promises were made to them, they did not lay hold of the promises by faith and they perished in the wilderness. They had the true religion. They had the pure worship of God. They had God's covenant. They had the presence of God in their midst. They had faithful ministers of God. They had the gospel of salvation preached unto them. But they did not mix the promises with faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. They not only did not enter, therefore, into the promised land, but did not enter into heaven to which it pointed. Let none of us, dear ones, fall short of the heavenly promise due to our unbelief and due to our love of this world and its pleasures. What shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his own soul? Please stand with me in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we do praise thee and thank thee that thou hast set before us a way of life, a way of life which is above, that we might depart from hell which is beneath. We pray, our God, that thou would fill our thoughts, O God, with with the glories of heaven. Fill our thoughts, O Lord, with the love that is in heaven, the peace that's in heaven, the purity that's in heaven, the unity that is in heaven. Fill our thoughts, O God, with the worship of Thee that is in heaven. O Lord, our worship of Thee may begin even now to faintly reflect that worship which we, O Father, will offer to Thee forever and ever. We thank Thee, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, for opening our minds, giving to us faith to lay hold of the promise today. May we not be like the people of Israel of old, who hear the promise, but do not receive that promise by faith, who hear the gospel preached, who bear witness through the gospel that Jesus Christ and his righteousness alone is that which merits heaven. But we, O God, take no steps at all to lay hold of that righteousness, to make that righteousness our own through faith. We pray, our Father, that thou would forgive us for acting as though this world were our home rather than heaven being our home. We pray our Lord and our God that thou would encourage our hearts today, faint as they may be, weak, discouraged, downtrodden, brokenhearted. Lord, we pray that thou would lift us up, that we may behold the glories which thou hast prepared for us, that heavenly reward. We pray through Christ our Savior. Amen. 
This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.